Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. In Oregon, on 91.7 FM KYAQ Central Coast, 106.7 FM Queso Cottage Grove. In Pennsylvania, on 92.9 FM WLRI Lancaster. In Hawaii, on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. In Ohio, on WGRN 94.1 FM Columbus. In Palinville, New York, on 102.9 FM WLPP in Grand Rapids, Michigan on WPRR Public Reality Radio in New Orleans on 102.3 WHIV Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ in Concord, New Hampshire WNHN in Fayetteville, Arkansas KPSQ in Seattle, Washington on KODX Are you taking notes? In Red Bluff and Redding, California KFOI in Round Mountain, California KKRN in Washington, D.C. on 105.5 FM in Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNFD, Progressive Voice of Minnesota. And coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Deprogrammed Radio, Detour Talk. We are blanketing the globe five days a week, as usually hosted by Brad Friedman of Bradblog.com. But he is off birthday partying with his beloved. Happy birthday, dear Desi. Let them eat cake. I'm Angie Koyarov in Deep. Heard on some of these very same stations and streams. Absolute whiplash. Trying to follow all the news these past few days. Later in the show, we're going to dig below the surface on two ongoing stories. The rise of the alt-right and the hidden element of America's healthcare crisis. CPAC roundup before that, and now... Here's a quick rundown of some headlines. The Brennan Center has released a comprehensive report on legislation aiming to curb voter access to the polls. Lawmakers have introduced 28 bills further restricting access in 14 states. Maybe the most discouraging is New Hampshire's moves to discourage students from voting. Two bills there. On the upside, Brennan says that every one of those states has seen competing measures introduced to expand voter access. It singles out Virginia for its broad pro-voter agenda. Big surprise in California when the state Democrats passed on endorsing Dianne Feinstein in her press for a sixth term. In fact, the party convention ended up endorsing nobody. But it would be kind of a shock to see her lose anyway. She is way ahead in funding, way ahead in name recognition, and in fact, in most of the polls. She's been particularly high profile lately, facing off with Trump and with the NRA. Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington has filed suit against Scott Pruitt's EPA documentation practices. Crew joined the public sector employee group Peer in the action. As reported by CNBC, the group cites news reports that Pruitt prefers to hold face-to-face meetings and avoids email to prevent his comments from being documented. They note that employees told the New York Times Pruitt prohibits staff from bringing cell phones to meetings and discourages them from taking notes. Gosh, wonder what they have to hide. Crew is also weighing in on the Trump Organization's claim on Monday that it took the money it made at its hotels from foreign governments and donated it to the U.S. Treasury. 
Unfortunately, that's pretty much all the statement said. No numbers, no details. And the Treasury, as of this moment, has not made a statement. Cruz says, quote, this announcement is wholly inadequate. There is no transparency as to how much money they donated, how they arrived at that number, how profits were calculated, where the profits came from. As we have pointed out before, their plan, even if fully implemented, is woefully insufficient, as it only includes hotels, not all Trump businesses, only includes events, as they're not even trying to track payments for hotel rooms and meals, and only includes a nebulous profit figure. Not all payments calculated at their discretion. There is no independent oversight or accountability. We're being asked to take their word for it. Most importantly, even if they had given every dime they made from foreign governments to the Treasury, the taking of those payments would still be a problem under the Constitution. I love crew. Axios is reporting that Trump, on the search for a new head of the FAA, looked into his private cockpit and said, hey, that guy knows how to fly a plane. Let's let him do it. Seriously. An admin official told Jonathan Swan at Axios that, yes, John Durkin, the pilot on Trump Force One during the campaign, is in the running to head the federal agency. Stacey Dash will run for Congress in California District 44. Okay, whatever. Let me bring in some help here to parse through more of the news. CPAC. While CPAC was going on last week, I got a cheerful email note from my close personal friend, Richard Spencer. He wanted all of us intimates to know. All right, let me fix that. Whoever sent the email in his name wanted everyone on some bizarrely constructed press release list to know that he would be speaking at CPAC. And that is pretty much indicative of the standard the annual conservative orgy set for its presenters. Now, Mona Charon seems to have been the only one there who dared to speak against the flow of anti-liberal, anti-feminist, pro-gun, anti-diversity code. She dared to point out that there are, you know, multiple assertions and accusations against dear leader Trump, and maybe those ought to be taken seriously. More than getting booed, reports are she was escorted out by three security guards for her own safety, but she says she is proud of the escapade. She wrote for the New York Times this morning, There's nothing more freeing than telling the truth, and it must be done again and again by those of us who refuse to be absorbed into this brainless, sinister, clownish thing called Trumpism, by those of us who refuse to overlook the fools, frauds, and fascists, wow, attempting to glide along in his slipstream into respectability. Reports are she is not being invited next year. One of the least restrained voices against brainless, sinister, clownish Trumpism is Scott Dworkin, co-founder of and senior advisor at the Democratic Coalition. Welcome, Scott. Hey, how are you doing, Angie? I'm good. I just I was following your tweets during CPAC and the reaction to so many of the speakers there. You know, I think the thing that surprised me most, and I'd love to get your take on this, is They could have held this same CPAC before the shootings in Florida, before the tide started turning against Trump. It's almost like they were inside a bubble where the rah-rah, pro-gun, pro-white, pro-guy mentality was still acceptable to many more people than it is now. Yeah, and, 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 you know, you can see that they don't feel really affected by a lot of the imagery that's going on and and the truth that's coming out about um, what assault weapons are doing to our communities and um, how terrified people are where they, instead of 
you know, going to school, they'd rather march in the streets and it's not to skip class. It's actually to march. Um, you know, people are, uh, the, the survivors that I've spoken to are disgusted. The parents are terrified and I've, I've never heard so much fury. And uh, the bottom line is it, it is partisan issue because for some ridiculous reason, Republicans are okay with it. And then there's the rest of us. It's mm-hmm. not just, you know, a, a majority of independents and Democrats especially, but, um, you know, there's a lot of Republicans that support banning assault weapons and um, there's nothing that they're doing now or plan on doing that's going to prevent another shooting. So why shouldn't people be outraged? And when they, the conservative, you know, when they got together for CPAC, it just seems like they uh, had another Charlottesville rally. Yes. And that's what it seemed like to me. It's what it felt like, you know? Yeah, that's a very good way to put it. Yeah. And, you know, there were screen captures. I tend to try to steer clear of, oh, this guy looks funny, ergo, let's make fun of his looks. But there were screen captures of Wayne LaPierre that I found to be not just, ha ha, he made a funny face, but I found it to be just a capture in a moment of how over the top this man has become. His own rhetoric, if you trace it from the 1990s to what he was saying this past week, he might as well be a different human being, and you can see it reflected in his very look. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's 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 definitely increased his. I think Trump is the one who's bashed down those those lines. But you know, uh, luckily it's opened up lines for people like you and me to speak back in the, in the same respect. Even though ours is sanity and theirs is insanity, I mean it's it's definitely. It's mind-boggling to me to what they're trying to accomplish because the, the only goal that I can see is money, mm-hmm. um, and there's no other there's no other reason for them to be uh, pushing for no research. I mean, it's the same thing that Trump does with everything else with the environment. He pushes for no research. He wants us to go back 15 steps and then uh, to have to negotiate from there. It takes something like this. I mean, it's not just one shooting. You know, we're talking about Texas and we're talking about Vegas and we're talking about here. And then there's there's other shootings as well that um, people probably forgot about at this point. I think the, re- the response, though, in regards to this and other crises across the country will be the same. And that's what will present, prevent it from happening again is when there is another mass shooting like this. I think that the people are going to stand up in the same way uh, and they're going to respond in the same way that they are now in order to grieve. Um, and people are, are tired of just, you know, taking it like, oh, well, it's the Second Amendment, so, you know. And it's just where they stop. It's like, well, you know, it's a gun issue. I'm not going to talk about that. Right. Like, what are you talking about? Like, are you out of your mind? Yeah, they are. They are out of their minds because, again, it's affecting our kids. It's a tool of mass destruction, and they might as well have, have bombs. I mean, you know, it, it, this is more effective in most cases. Um, for them to use an assault rifle. Well, you know, uh, it's, it's, just, it's just incompetence, you know? Well, our, our president did assure us today that, you know, were he in the situation, he would have rushed on in there to stop it. I mean, did you see that? That was nuts. Even without a weapon. Even without a weapon. <laughs> without and, a and weapon. I understand that. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I could say that with a straight face and understand, like, I would find, I don't know, I would, just thinking off the top of my head, I, I would go, I would find like the first locker open. I tried to rip the locker off the wall and then I'd use that as a shield, you know, something <laughs> unique like that. I mean, I see Trump 
running inside and then straight to the cafeteria when you get pudding. Like, you know, I mean, like, I don't see him. I see him hiding in, like, a freezer by himself and locking people out. He's that guy. He's not the guy that runs into anywhere. And, it, and you can tell he's lying because he's saying he's runs. He doesn't run anywhere. Um, but he, he, I will say this, like, I appreciate that he said that um, because uh, I, I, but I just don't think that it's true. It's a lie. But I, I mean, like, it, I do appreciate that he, he said he would have been willing because I wouldn't even expected that. Like I wouldn't even expected him to lie about it. I'd say that he, he, you know, he'd have some security force that he ran and then, you know, he'd send them in. If they didn't do their job, he'd say that he had just been uh, uh, at a licensing deal. He didn't actually run the security company, mm. just like his other businesses. Anyways, um, he, I don't think that he would go in. I don't, I don't think, I don't think there's any chance he would have been one of the guys outside and he would have blamed other people for it. Um, you know, for not going in. And I, I just don't see him a, a guy on the front lines because I mean, he's terrified to confront his own party. He's terrified to confront Democrats in person and actually face issues. He's willing to negotiate with human rights. I mean, it's a disgusting, vile human being who's as evil as that we'll, we'll probably hopefully ever see in our lifetime um, on this side of the world. Well, let's talk about the, the, how effective the protests against what we saw at CPAC have been. And one of the things that came out of that, there was coverage of the fact that I believe it was Facebook that had moved off of Media Row this year and was instead in a presentation room with the Heritage Foundation and with the NRA. There was Google that was uh, one of the presenting sponsors of the whole CPAC convention. We're seeing a big press to get people to cut ties with the NRA. We've already seen First Bank of Omaha do it. We've seen a number of the credit card companies do it. One of the more stubborn ones is Apple, and another stubborn one is Amazon, trying to get NRA TV off Amazon. TV. How effective are you seeing that movement? You know, we, we ran the Fire Hannity movement and then also um, the Quit the Council movement where we had Trump actually, he disbanded all those councils. I mean, we, we've done a lot of those sort of efforts. We've never done anything this uh, big, and, and I haven't seen things move this quickly before because I, I just think that the, the numbers are obscene in regards to how many people are reaching out. Um, I don't know if they'll see economic effects of this until, you know, another two weeks or so. But this is not going to go away because I, I can just say I just started organizing uh, online, um, our online to in-person stuff where we push people online to do stuff, you know, show up in person to protest, to make phone calls, to write letters to Congress, that sort of thing. Um, so we take that online activism uh, and we push, you know, a hashtag, then those hashtags trend and we start talking about it with the press. And at, right now we're at the spot where it's getting talked about a little bit in the press, but we have not really pushed it hard. Today is the first day where people usually forget about mass shootings. And so um, this afternoon into tonight, we'll be pushing boycott NRA and boycott FedEx um, as our two main hashtags. And then the third one will be a ban assault weapons. And I can say that the response that we have to this is bigger than any other campaign that we've ever ran, um, except for Trump shutdown, which was, you know, that was millions of tweets. We hope to get at that kind of level. But, um, you know, I'm very hopeful with this because people are, are serious. They're taking screenshots of their cancellations to different, you know, subscriber services, and they're pushing their family to do the same. Mm -hmm. um, and this is what it's going to take. I mean, that is, it's going to have to take the actual action because not every, 
company is going to fold on PR. Um, some are going to have to, we're going to have to just stop using them and actually make a dent. And then they'll have to make a change in, in their leadership um, because that's what we'll be calling for next is uh, for people who don't want to move. We're going to ask their board and their executives to resign. If you're just tuning in, this is the broadcast. I'm Angie Coro sitting in for Brad Friedman. I'm talking to Scott Dworkin of the Democratic Coalition. Scott, one of the things I noticed in the news today was that although we already knew Trump was at the lowest rate of approval with the U.S., he's down to 31 percent, which hasn't budged an inch since the last major poll. It turns out that if you break out the Americans under 35, his approval rating drops to 22 percent. And I don't know if you're looking this far ahead yet. One of our problems with a lot of Americans, not just young ones, is getting them to the polls. And I'm wondering who's planning ahead, who we can watch, who we can support in terms of turning this disapproval into real action at the booth this coming election. Sure. Um, Well, obviously, our group, the Democratic Coalition, is is one of those groups. Um, Another group is Indivisible. Um, Mm -hmm. They do wonderful organizing efforts across the country. Uh, Democracy for America, they, they do a lot of grassroots campaigns across the country as well. Uh, Swing Left is uh, focusing, I, I think, on House districts throughout the country. Um, that's a great organization run by good people as well. Uh, Move On is doing some, some wonderful work. Um, and I'm going to leave, obviously, some out of people that are doing great stuff. But there, yeah. there are a lot of different big groups that are kind of getting into their lanes of like what they're best at and and really delivering on every level. And without coordinating, um, we've been lucky enough to have, um, you know, joint sort of support, uh, different hashtags from nonprofit groups and, um, you know, things outside of just the political realm. And that's that's helpful combined with the, the celebrities um, that have been, been helpful. But what we're, what we're doing is uh, we're putting all those groups together so that people are aware of what groups you know, are helping out, what groups are dependable. On top of us, um, taking the people who are very uh, known as leaders throughout the resistance um, online, and we're making state chairs, uh, and then also we'll have congressional district chairs as well, um, of people online so that we can be, uh, to have our finger on the pulse in real time to make sure that if anything happens, um, we have someone actually on the ground who can you know, videotape things, photograph things, uh, or be knowledgeable of the situation to talk to the press about things, um, not just online. But yeah, it's it's a so what basically we'll have an outline of those different groups that can help out and what capacities they specialize in. Um, there's a lot of people uh, who do you know overall grassroots messaging strategy that kind of stuff. Um, but we we just want to make sure it's all in one place, and that's one of the things that we do is get everybody together in the same room to talk the bigger picture and and, and kind of get on the same page uh, as much as possible. Let me do a couple quick hits with you before before I let you go. Just uh, some some fast answers on a couple different issues out there. One of which is uh, the pervasiveness of the crisis actors uh, monologue going on from some quarters. That of course every kid that you've seen stand up who was at the shooting in Florida, who watched their classmates get mown down, were in fact part of a false flag operation, you know, Alex Jones heaven. And my question there is, how effective do you think the social media groups have been in trying to plug the holes in the, in trying to quash this kind of stuff? Uh, it's it's tough to, to kind of uh, put that stuff to bed, but it backfired big time, um, as you can see. Uh, David Hogg and Gonzalez, both Emma Gonzalez, they both uh, 
uh, had a, a massive following shift. I think Gonzalez may be close to a million followers. Like it, it completely backfired because people were like, who? And they didn't know his name before. So they were starting to advertise this guy acts like he's a shooting survivor, but his dad is actually an FBI agent that coaches him. And this is all just a trained event. He actually didn't attend that school. I mean, that's what they were coming up with. Right. Um, you know, there's video of him exiting the building with his hands on his head. So I, I don't know what, uh, but, but they have to, it's all about, it's all about putting out the rumor. So mm-hmm. we're talking about it. Right. Mm-hmm. But what, what's happened is people overcome that he's not backing down. He confronted it head on and said, you're a liar. You know what I mean? Like that. Lesson. And that is what we need is we need people to point out when people are, are lying because this misinformation, a lot of times with the intent and what they're doing, it's illegal. People can go to jail for this stuff. This is not something, you know, this is propaganda. Real? Um, I did not really. So this it, is prosecutable. It, oh, absolutely. It, it depends on who it injures and what it, what it's about. But mm-hmm. David Hogg, he wouldn't be considered a public figure um, at that point. Like he, he, he wouldn't. So he, he's under different laws, especially what they're writing about him. Whoever produced the video. I mean, they could be in a lot of trouble. He could sue and it could be devastating. But, but again, if we don't know who made it and we don't know who started it, then the people who spread it need to be held accountable. Just like, um, for example, here's a, here's a great example of, of fake news spreading. Uh, Mike Flynn Jr. Uh, was on the inaugural committee the, or the transition, and he had to resign because he was the one who spread the Pizzagate story. Right. So even though he didn't write it, he did spread it. And I think part of the deal that Mike Flynn made includes you know, xing out his son so his son's not – uh, can't be prosecuted, uh, but he he was in Russia with his dad. You know what I mean? So like, right. there's, there's there's a lot of clarity here on why people are doing certain things, and that sort of act can lead to someone shooting, you know, a shotgun in a DC pizza restaurant because they think that there's a basement full of pedophiles run by uh, Hillary and John Podesta. I mean, like, it's ridiculous, but someone believed it. All it takes is one. And that's why we go back to banning assault weapons is all it takes is one. Anyways, uh, I, I will say it's, it's just, it is illegal in some circumstances to uh, share fake news, especially when you're propagating it and you know that it's false. And it can injure, if it injures a specific person or a business, you could be in deep trouble. Not if you just retweet it, but if you're sharing it, you're pushing it, you're pushing a hashtag around it, you're pushing it as truth, and you're a member of a political campaign, you know, for the president. I mean, like, that is troublesome. Got it. All right, Scott, we've got one more question for you. We're going to go into the family Trump. And we had the first lady, Ivanka Trump, showing up at the Olympics. And then when she was asked, right. when she was asked about, uh, at, at a press conference, she was asked about the allegations against her father, because, of course, she's standing up for women all the time. Uh, she backed out of that. So, again, we're faced with that, what are you and what aren't you in this administration? Meanwhile, Jared is, you know, is he or is he not going to lose his clearance? So what's the latest on those two from you? I think that the, the problem with Jared, clearance or losing a White House gig, it would be too easy for people on the outside to paint him as a criminal at that point. Um, and so they don't want him to lose that, that kind of position. I think he probably has two weeks or less. I mean, I, I, wow. there's not going to be much time. Things have accelerated at, at such a great point. I would assume that we started with 
you know, five, four or five people that have flipped now, or five people that have flipped, 13 Russians, three entities um, in total. And, and so the next thing I would assume is the link to the Russian government um, and also the link to the American actors on the ground here. Um, and that would involve the members of the Trump campaign, what everybody's been waiting for, you know, proof of collusion slash conspiracy against the United States. Um, but keep in mind, even though as much as Trump doesn't want to say it, Every single one of these indictments involves Russia. Every single one of these, I'll repeat, every single one of these indictments has to do with Russia. Every single one. So even the, the one that was out in California that was random, he was selling bank accounts to Russians. Russians were then using that um, for purposes involving the interference. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, like this, it all links together. It's all flipping people from different facets of the campaign. And it's all surrounding Trump with, uh, probably the case that says, uh, you know, here I'm gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna indict your sons and, and everything else unless you resign. But I, I'll say Jared probably has two weeks left. Ivanka um, probably will be there as long as she wants to be. It doesn't matter if she gets indicted or not. Um, it doesn't matter if she, you know, pled guilty. She probably still would be in the White House um, as long as she wanted to be there. I just don't think if I was, if I was them. If I was them, I would have left a long time ago because this, all this does is make people look into you more. And once you're caught, you know, you probably should scamper so that people don't have, a, you know, an eye on you. Um, and, and I think that uh, probably this week you're going to see movement against Jared, heavy movement. Scott Dworkin, you know I would talk to you forever if I could, so I'm going to let you go. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. All right. I appreciate you. Scott Dworkin, the Democratic Coalition's co-founder and senior advisor. You can follow him on Twitter at Funder, F-U-N-D-E-R. Coming up, it's author David Nywert on the roots and rot of the American far right. I'm Angie Cuero. This is The Bradcast. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. Given the outcome of the 2016 election, we really need your support now more than ever. This is no longer a drill. It never was. Please consider supporting whichever progressive media outlet is serving you. Most, just like us, do not receive corporate or political support. We all need your support to keep up the resistance now more than ever. From Desi Doyen and myself, thank you. It's just a jump to the left. It's the broadcast. Brad is out taking very good care to spoil the very deserving Desi for her birthday, as should be. Hey, we were just talking about the rightest of the right, CPAC, and we're now going out to even the further fringe, the so-called alt-right the crop of new American Nazis, the reinvigorated white supremacists, the fringe that produced the New Mexico school shooter last December. And, well, I don't need to tally these all up. The Southern Poverty Law Center already did, reporting that 110 deaths and injuries resulted from alt-right terrorists opening fire on Americans. So who are these folks? Where do they come from? If you really dig down, what are the patterns in their recruitment and development? How does it all work? I talked to David Nyward about his book, Alt-America, The Rise of the Radical Right in the Age of Trump, for my own show, In Deep. And David has immersed himself in the arenas where these people operate. In fact, he was there when one of them opened fire. Here are some highlights from our conversation. 
So I brought up the fact that you start off early in the book with the Obama birth certificate, mm -hmm. the theory, the conspiracy, the messaging. Let's use that as a template and talk about how the word got out, how the belief was reinforced, and how it's still resonating today. Take us on that path. Well, the Internet has always played a really critical role uh, in all this. Going back to the 1990s, uh, the, the militia movement, the patriot militia movement where all this began was fundamentally the first internet-driven mass movement in the United States. Uh, they were they organized online. They made connections with each other online in ways that they never could before. Um, and it also sort of was the origins of, for this alternative universe. This is where Alex Jones got his start by promoting theories about Oklahoma City and Waco. Um, in 1995, you know, that's when Jones started doing this. And, and um, the Patriot Movement went away for, in large extent first after Oklahoma City was a, there was a big downturn because everyone turned away after seeing the sort of horror that they could, that this movement could produce. And then it, it lingered on. It still had a fairly substantive presence in rural America right up through about the year 2000. Serious downturn after the Y2K apocalypse that was supposed to materialize uh, did not because this was a major recruitment tool for them in 1999. And, and come uh, January 2000, all the army of followers that they had found themselves with basements full of beans and rice and, uh, and no apocalypse <laughs> to eat it with. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And so there, there was a huge downturn. And the numbers of militias dropped down to about, I think, 130 by um, uh, 2003 or four. Mm -hmm. And uh, simultaneously after 9-11, the nation's attention when it came to terrorism turned from white radicals to Muslims. And in fact, after 9-11, pretty much the idea of a terrorist, if you said terrorist to an average American, they saw a brown guy in a turban, right? Yes. Um, they did not see Timothy McVeigh anymore. And so they, they sort of trundled along and um, there was a big gap between the conspiracists conspiracist world, the alternative world, and mainstream Republicans all through the Bush years because, of course, uh, their their main theory was the 9-11 truther conspiracy theory that George W. Bush was actually secretly behind the 9-11 attacks, right? And uh, obviously mainstream Republicans are going to go along with that and, quote, in fact, quite typically they attacked uh, the people like Alex Jones who were promoting this stuff, um, both you know, Bill O'Reilly and Rush Limbaugh were notorious for attacking these people, as well as Sean Hannity. Um, and but but that that gap went away once come 2008, and Barack Obama is running for the presidency. And by 2009, with the formation of the Tea Party movement, what we saw was really the the, the two worlds really coming together: uh, mainstream Republicans and this far right conspiratorial world. And the the main and the Tea Party movement really became this massive conduit uh, for radicalization for the for the movement of a very of far right extremist ideas into the mainstream of conservative politics, mm -hmm. uh, so that by 2012, 
you know, it was, I would go, or really by 2010, I would go to a tea party gathering in Montana and it was indistinguishable from the militia meetings that I would go to in the same towns in the 1990s. Mm -hmm. uh, they were selling the same books on the tables, spouting the same rhetoric. Um, pretty interesting. So, you know, and of course, as, um, you know, we could see this all the way up through events such as the Bunkerville standoff with Clive and Bundy in Nevada, and then the Malheur uh, National Refuge standoff in Oregon, also overseen by the Bundys in 2016, where, you know, we saw all the Gadsden flags and, and all of the same Tea Party rhetoric. You know, you saw a lot of Tea Partiers there, but they were also spouting the very far-right extremist patriot rhetoric. Mm -hmm. You're you're not a guy who's only watched this from the sidelines. You were at one of the protests where you saw someone get shot. Yeah, I was about ten feet away from him. Uh, so in on inauguration evening, um, uh, on the night of the inauguration, January twentieth, we the the University of Washington hosted Milo Yiannopoulos, uh, and uh, there was you know a substantial counter protest that turned out. And uh, it was actually the first of these counter protests and or protests that really uh, turned fairly violent. And um, yeah, and I was right in the middle of, middle of it. And uh, I was standing next to uh, a young man named Joshua Dukes, who had been acting as a kind of peacekeeper as this tall, very athletic young man. And he would just place his body in between the guys that wanted to fight. And he was, you know, just trying to keep temper, temp the temperature down. And there was this character uh, who I'd been watching all night going around from the alt-right side trying to cause trouble. And uh, he, um, he had a pepper spray gun that he was starting to use on the counter-protesters. And Joshua went to grab that pepper spray gun out of his hand and the guy's wife, who we found out later had been, had almost pulled the gun out earlier that night, pulled out a gun and shot him. And uh, he was in ICU for two months and uh, he's doing fine now. I mm -hmm. had coffee with him a couple weeks ago. Uh, he's looking healthy, he's lost a lot of weight. Uh, but yeah, he survived. Um, had a bullet lodged next to his spine though. We talked about how some of the issue here is responsibility in the media. How did you see that event reported? <laughs> well, mainly thanks to Breitbart. Uh, the Breitbart immediately reported it as an alt-right person had been shot. They flipped the, t the cards on. And that was what Milo said that evening at the gathering. He said, they're shooting us now. And actually it had gone the other way. Breitbart never corrected it. Daily Caller did correct their reportage, uh, but just barely. <laughs> mm -hmm. And, um, but yeah, and but most of all, the the crazy thing about it is, is that, you know, we've afterwards, especially after Charlottesville, we saw uh, a lot of media narrative uh, building up the what they the uh, you know the black bloc um, anti-fascist faction as this nefarious violent threat that was actually half responsible for the violence at these events. Good right? people on both sides, bad people on both sides. Yeah. Um, and uh, But the reality is uh, these things are being all 
uh, fomented quite deliberately by the alt-right. They're going there to create violence as much as they can. I want to be fair about that because we're very experienced in protest here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And to be fair, there is a fringe that, you know, some of the more radicals, the anarchists, who do go down the street and break windows and start fights and start fires. And I I don't want to dismiss that. In Seattle as well. Yeah. Um, No, there there is. And I, I, you know, they're fundamentally, they're every bit as anti-democratic as the alt-right is. Mm -hmm. So as far as I'm concerned, they're not my allies. In Uh, numbers, how do they compare? Significantly different. So probably the numbers of the radical left, these black bloc folks, you know, they're essentially, they're basically relegated around the country to a handful of cities with uh, left-wing campuses. Um, And totally around the country, they probably number in the low thousands. Mm -hmm. But when we talk about the radical right, uh, just the alt-right, if we just talk about the alt-right, and this doesn't even include the patriot militia right, um, What's the distinction you're making there? Well, I'll explain that. But the, uh, but just the alt right, we're looking at. If you look at the internet numbers, um, you know we know that Alex Jones gets two million views a week. We know that uh, the Daily Stormer, the neo-Nazi website, gets hundreds of thousands of visits a day. Um, and these are so we're seeing really massive internet traffic numbers. And these are probably the best gauge we actually have for the actual size of the movement. Mm -hmm. Uh, But the participation online is also massive. So we know that it's not just ephemeral. Right. Um, And so, yeah, uh, if we were to hazard a guess at the size of the alt-right, it numbers in the hundreds of thousands, if not millions. And then if you go out to rural America, the world out there is very different, but it's fundamentally the default worldview in rural America today. In Idaho, Montana, Nevada, Oklahoma, the South, wherever you go, uh, the patriot militia worldview, their understanding of what the Constitution is, is fundamentally the default view now. It mm. is pervasive. And that's also really profoundly disturbing to me as well. What's that distinction you're making between the alt-right and the patriot militia movement? Well, so the alt-right really kind of, or the the patriot movement was the origin of this alternative universe. And uh, they definitely share this alternative universe with the alt-right. They all believe in much the same sort of overarching narrative of nefarious globalists conspiring to enslave America. Right. Uh, and uh, but but there is a very, you know, they very much can, uh, live in different zones of this universe because the patriot militia folks are repelled by racism or at least not really eager to embrace it. And so they make maintain a really fairly firm division between themselves and the alt-right. Although at a lot of these events I've covered on the West Coast, uh, we've all had. Uh, militiamen showing up to act as security for the alt-right. So we know that the overlap is going on. But as these events have gone on and these militiamen have recognized that they are 
defending neo-Nazis, they've started peeling away quite a bit. So there is a division. There is a, a you know, there are definitely zones, different zones that they occupy. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, yeah, they're not as, they're not as vile, quite frankly. I mean, they're, they're every bit as nuts, <laughs> but, <laughs> but they're not nearly as nasty or vile as, as, um, as the neo-Nazis are. I wanted to get into the roles of the two primary parties in the U.S. And one of our audience members has already gone there. Many commentators have agreed that the Democrats' focus on identity politics has helped the far right by giving the message that the Democratic <laughs> Party doesn't care about working class rights. Mm -hmm. Do you agree? Well, I think that that's the story that the right likes to tell. Mm -hmm about the um, working class, or about the Democratic Party. Um, it, partly because the whole phrase identity politics is so fraught. It, people need to understand that racism, white supremacy, is the original identity politics. Mm -hmm. It's white identity politics. And they, that set the tone, that sets the rules of the game. That has always set the rules of the game. So when Democrats are playing identity politics, as it were, they are simply uh, trying to counter the, the rules and, and the sort of uh, precedents being laid down by white supremacy. They are trying to counter the effects of white supremacy. Mm -hmm. That's to me what, um, that to me is what identity politics is all about. Mm -hmm. And as well as the patriarchy, let's be clear on this. But um, yeah, the uh, the idea that um, Democrats should um, abandon that fight is, uh, I think, just um, a really bad idea. Mm -hmm. Because I don't think that I don't think we can. Uh, it, there's stakes are too high, and there's there's just too much at risk if we were to abandon. You know the people that were actually frequently in the business of defending. That said, the way we uh, wage identity politics is very problematic. The way we play the game is very problematic. Particularly the way we kind of tend to argue. I think the left has kind of forgotten how to persuade, or no longer thinks it's important to persuade. Uh, that our self-righteousness, that our superiority is, that our moral superiority is enough to persuade people, right? Well, no one is ever persuaded by being shamed. I'm sorry, no one. It doesn't work. <laughs> right. You know? Right. Um, and, and so, I, and I find it remarkable. You know, a lot of times, a lot of arguments and discussions that we have nowadays are we go along and what we do is we wait for, we'll have a discussion with someone from like middle America and we wait for them to say something racist. And then when they say something racist, we go, aha, racist. We, I win. <laughs> you know? I win. You lose. You know? And you're a racist and that's the end of the conversation, right? Or you're a bigot of some kind. Uh, and... Uh, for me, the answer, I mean, really, to persuade and to be effective is that once that person says something racist, that's not the end of the conversation, it's the beginning of it. The, but that entails being thoughtful. It entails being knowledgeable. Because in, if, if you want to argue the real underlying causes of racism and what 
really is wrong with racism. You got to understand what's wrong with racism on a really fundamental level. And that requires us thinking and, and understanding it, knowing history, knowing how, you know, how society works, uh, having some sociological ideas, mm -hmm. you know, having some understanding of the realities of racial dynamics in a way that you can actually talk to people about it in a way that doesn't scare them off and offend them and make them feel bad. And instead, you try to bring them into your side. And ultimately, it comes down to being empathetic. And it, I will say it's really hard to be empathetic with a lot of these characters. Some of them, it's a waste of time. Right. Um, you have to triage. Yeah. Who's yeah. worth talking. You, know, you, have to, you have to decide who's worth your time and who's not. David Nywert, author of Alt-America. Our whole conversation will air next week on In Deep with Angie Coiro. Next... We look in the mouth of American healthcare and find a big, fat, nasty cavity. Coming up on the broadcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. the broadcast. I'm Angie Cuero in for Brad today. He is back tomorrow. Big stuff gets the headlines. Smaller ongoing injustices fight for air. And here is one that I, for one, never gave much thought. Even before Trump joined the GOP in deciding that the peons and serfs don't deserve basic health care, one of the great American inequalities was already dental care. There are whole segments of indigent Americans whose dental care breaks into two parts. First, you take the best care you can of your teeth without insurance or money. Second, when they get too painful to deal with anymore, go to an overcrowded temporary clinic and get them pulled out by the roots. I'm not kidding. Mary Otto started writing about dental health when she learned of a young man who died of a toothache. He got the infection diagnosed. He couldn't cover the cost of the meds to take care of it. The infection moved through his body and he died. And she started to research just how prevalent this kind of scenario is. She put all of her findings in her book, Teeth, the story of beauty, inequality, and the struggle for oral health in America. So she and I got together to talk about it on In Deep before a live audience. You will be shocked, shocked to hear that for decades, access to dental health care has been limited by money and politics. One of the things that I learned reading the book was this struggle that started to evolve early on between who's allowed to provide dental care, whose polished and accomplished hands that belongs in, the battle to try to let dental hygienists shoulder some of the responsibility of distributing care, basically making it available. Can you talk about the South Carolina School District when this when this became kind of a point battle? Yeah, this is interesting. And I 
didn't understand, I didn't realize when I was started writing the book where dental hygienists came from and the origin of their profession, but they came out of the progressive era back in the very early part of the 20th century when there was kind of a, a feeling that we can, we can tackle the challenges of our, of society with, you know, hygiene and good planning and working together. And these hygienists were tra trained to teach prevention, basically get preventive care and basic routine services to patients. And a lot of them worked in schools. And then there was this kind of retraction of, of that social movement, you know, the kind of red scare and all that, and the school clinics were closed and all this. And hygienists started working in mostly in private practice offices where they were under the direct supervision of, of dentists. And, but over and over in response to demand, Lawmakers and policymakers and public health advocates have said, hey, we have 200,000 trained, licensed dental hygienists, and we're not making good enough use of them. They could be going out to where the patients are, you know, getting care to school children, nursing homes, all these places where people are that can't, might not be able to get themselves into a dental office. So anyway, South Carolina, 2000, the state legislature decides, you know, we have 250,000 school children who aren't getting access to dental care. There, many of them are poor. Some of them are living in rural areas. There aren't even dentists working in some of our counties. Let's change the law to allow dental hygienists to go out and screen these children, give them some basic preventive care, and if some of them have deep needs, they can help them get to a dentist. So the law was changed, and one of the dental hygienists who was most happy to hear about this was a dental hygienist named Tammy Bird. She was kind of a leader in her state society and was working to get access to patients. She felt like there was more she could do with her license. But she realized, hey, without a team of dental hygienists who could actually go out to these schools, it could be kind of an empty promise. So she decided to start a business and serve as a contractor, you know, to get hygienists to these schools that needed hygienists. Mortgages her house, mortgages her car, buys the supplies, starts this little company, gets a loan from the Small Business Administration, and starts placing hygienists in the different counties that need care. The legislature goes into recess, and the state dental board gets an emergency regulation passed to say patients need to be seen first by a dentist before the hygienist can see them to serve these children. It throws a huge kink into Tammy Bird's business. The, the same old bottleneck that had been the problem to begin with has, has reemerged. And she starts to lose her business and lose everything. Um, the Federal Trade Commission intervenes in her case and takes the State Board of Dental Examiners to court and says, you're obstructing access to care for all these needy children. And the dental board argued the case all the way up to the Supreme Court, which failed to hear it. And Tammy Bird was allowed to go out and see these children. And she's still out there with her teams of hygienists getting care to kids who can't drive themselves to a private office or, or get care otherwise. And, and it's a, it was an important lesson to me about uh, a workforce that we have and how we can use it how, and how different forces kind of intervene to control or open up access to, to care. Is it unfair or is it too cartoonish villain to say 
that kind of thing is essentially a power and money grab. Is there more? Is it more layered than that? You know, on some level, I mean, most of the dental care we have in this country is provided through the private practice system, you know, and it's a great system if you have dental insurance and or the money to pay out of pocket for your care and a car to get to your appointments and a job where you can take off time to to go to to the dentist and or take your children to the dentist. But it doesn't work for you know, roughly, you know, 100 million of us. Or we live in a community that doesn't have a dentist, which is about 50 million Americans live in places that are, they're federally designated as dental shortage areas. So other workforce solutions have been tried and proposed over the years, but there's always been a very strong motive by organized dentistry to control the marketplace for services and defend the private practice system as we have it here. So public health imperatives to get, you know, care across a whole population and private practice imperatives to get patients into the door to pay for services are, they're two different worldviews mm -hmm. and, and um, they're at odds. They're at odds. What, what creates those geographical dentistry deserts? There are communities rural places, you know, very sparsely populated that it might not be a really practical place to op open a private practice office. Dentists go to school for, you know, four or five years. They graduate often with a quarter of a million dollars in debt. Um, they tend to set up their practices in places that are affluent, you know, populous metropolitan areas. In some places, there's so many dentists, they're kind of competing for business. You see billboards and ads, you know, selling services. But then there are other places that don't have anyone. Uh, so there's a maldistribution problem. Mm. And, it, and it's, it affects rural areas. It also affects poor urban areas. There aren't enough dentists who accept public insurance in many places. They say the reimbursement rates are too low. You know, the, there's a lot of paperwork involved in accepting you know, Medicaid and here, here, in, here in California, it's called Dentical, but it's a big deal. I mean, 13 million people in California are covered by Dentical. That's a third of the state's population. More than 5 million children, like 5.6 million children. Only roughly half of them are getting care from Dentical. Only a quarter of adults are. There is a mustache twirling villain in this book. Roger Levin. This is a guy who is a consultant on a grand scale to have dentists have a, a very profitable practice. And Roger talks about the practices that take Medicaid. It's great that some people take Medicaid to help the people who have needs, but he went on to warn the audience about Medicaid patients. They tend to miss appointments. They take over your entire reception room. Some things from your reception room go home with them. Some stuff disappears. Hand towels disappear. If you have a basket of lovely things in your restroom, they take things home. He said that rules about lateness and missed appointments need to be firmly stressed. We are very nice to them, but we have to manage them differently. We use words we would never use with our fee-for-service patients. We value Medicaid. The only way we play a little gray is sequestering the hours of Medicaid patients. If people come in, they want to be with people like themselves. How did those words play with the dentists in attendance? He was talking, actually, to a dentist who provides a lot of Medicaid 
care. I actually seen her volunteer on a um, mobile clinic that goes around to really poor school districts. And she, this was at the end of a two-day program about boosting your sales and making your, your practice more profitable. And she, she asked him, she said, I haven't heard you talk about Medicaid. What are your thoughts about it? And that's, that was what he offered. Unfortunately, you know, secret shopper kind of tests th th that are done to see, you know, if patient, Medicaid patients are getting access, often find that dentists are far more reluctant to make an appointment for a parent of a Medicaid child than they are of a parent with a private insurance card. Medicaid patients report they feel disrespected when they get to their appointments, uh, that they're, even their cards are treated with disrespect. I know in one peer-reviewed study, that, you know, they collected comments from some of the Medicaid parents. One mother said, I just felt like crying. I, was, I felt so humiliated. That is not a culture that helps advance oral health among the people who need it most, the people who are at most vulnerable. Um, for disease, not from a public health perspective because of personal failings, because of, but because of the multifactorial nature of oral disease and the fact that to live in poverty is to live with a thousand distractions every day and a hierarchy of needs that is so hard to satisfy. So many strikes against people in attaining a state of oral health and to be treated with disrespect when they manage to get to a dental office is, is a heartbreaking thing. That's Mary Otto. The book is Teeth, the story of beauty, inequality, and the struggle for oral health in America. I'm Angie Cuero. I've been sitting in for Brad today. He and Desi will return tomorrow. Until then, good luck, world. Good luck, world.